Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Ptolemy Tompkins, an American writer and contributing editor for Guideposts and Angels on Earth magazines. He is the author of five major books, including Paradise Fever, The Divine Life of Animals, and the focus of his writing, especially his latest book, The Modern Book of the Dead, is summed up quite elegantly in these words that I found on his website. Quote, I feel that spiritually speaking, I'm a genuine product of my time. And my time is, more than anything else, one where all the formerly separate spiritual traditions are crashing into one another, creating a situation in which all the members of the world's faiths are being called upon to rewrite themselves without compromising their core integrity. If the globalization of the world has done any good, it's enforcing people everywhere to come to terms with the sheer multiplicity of human belief and the need to ground one's own beliefs in a bedrock of tolerance for others, rather than knee-jerk denials or blanket condemnations. World history has, in recent years, been forcing us to just such a revisioning of our belief systems. And it's a revisioning we have to respond to, not just within groups, but individually as well. Welcome, Ptolemy. I'm so pleased to have you, especially under the challenging conditions of your cold. Yes, my cold and my uh, flu, so God knows what will get out of me. Maybe it'll be... Uh, and maybe you'll rise to new heights I'll of delirium. <laughs> Considering all the medications you've just downed in, in the effort to be on the show, uh, anything can happen. Absolutely. Well, as uh, as we've heard from my my introduction that I cadged from your website, you have a real um, elegant way with words, and Thank I you. have to say I was um, very challenged in getting through your book before the interview because I just wanted to linger and kind of go down all the rabbit holes that you brought up as you meandered through history. And yet I knew that I had to finish the book before our interview. And so I was very frustrated. Well, there are an awful lot of places where I could sort of wander off, but I tell myself to stop because the, the subject is so enormous and I have the benefit of being a specialist in None of the subjects at all. I mean, there's there's not a direction in which I'm not sort of going by the seat of my pants. I don't know enough about ancient Egypt. I don't know enough about ancient Rome or the Paleolithic or history of Catholicism. You know, I'm basically a guy who's fascinated in the subject, but just doing my best to tell a story, and that makes for you know, kind of running along with this plot and seeing all this other stuff going on that I could potentially run off with but just saying no i want to tell i want to tell a simple story a simple story is really what i would a, a simple story made out of preposterously complex subject matter is mm -hmm. what the goal of the book was like, mm -hmm. this is so complex but we need a simple story we well don't have one anymore. i would virtue to say venture to say that you have done a very uh fine job of pulling together narratives from all of these disparate 
sources and resources and, and weaving them into a fairly simple story, but um, a story that's embroidered with, with uh, much side information that does enrich it. Um, it. It's almost like Lectio Divina, that you have to be in the mood to really go with the flow. So let's get into the meat of the book. It's called The Modern Book of the Dead. So you uh, reference both the Tibetan Book of the Dead and the Book of Toth, which is the Egyptian uh, recounting of what happens to us after we die. So why did you feel the need to write a more contemporary analysis of the afterlife? Well, just because I can't remember a time when I didn't... I, I grew up as... Uh, my father uh, wrote Secrets of the Great Pyramid and the Secret Life of Plants. I grew up in a very New Age atmosphere. And um, I can't remember a time when the uh, Egyptian Book of the Dead and the Tibetan Book of the Dead weren't sitting around in various versions. And they exercised kind of a pull on me. I would wander around my father's libraries, stare at this book or that, and often would not pick it up for you know maybe a decade or so. But they, these books were real presences in my father's house. And um, when, when I did finally pick up uh, both the uh, Egyptian and the Tibetan Book of the Dead, what I was surprised to find a text that was very hard to penetrate. Um, the translators, various translators, you know, the book, both, both books have been brought into English in many different ways. And none of them are easy for completely different reasons. They are um, full of alien words, full of alien ideas. They are alien books from alien cultures. And they were written with the most salutary reasons in mind, um, helping people deal with the passage of death and telling them what happens. But they were not written for our culture. And what you had in the 60s was Timothy Leary and everybody gravitating to the Tibetan Book of the Dead, because, wow, that's a groovy title. And then you have all these people trying to piece their way through it and make it fit their lives. And I, I argue in my book somewhere that trying to find out what happens when you die by consulting a book produced thousands of years ago in ancient Egypt is like sending away to ancient Egypt for a map to New Jersey. <laughs> um, the, the, the death that you and I are going to die is right here where we are. And do we need... Is, do we really need to import these incredibly exotic concepts, or are we being lazy in not, in in, in uh, not coming up with ones of our own? It seems to me the really respectful way to um, to re react to relate to the after death text of another culture is not to just study it carefully in a scholarly way. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But those texts exist because the people who produced them took the afterlife seriously. They weren't messing around. They weren't sort of, you know, novelty books or anything like that. They were maps to negotiate the single most consequential thing that will happen to any of us. And it does a disservice to a book like that to merely look at it as a museum piece. Um, what a cool idea. What a neat thing. Um, what those books really ask for from us is that we come up with our own. We take them, we take what they say with seriousness, and, and then we ask, is this right for us, 
or do we need to make a few changes? What do we believe about the life after death? Do we believe in it? Can we take it seriously? Um, and that's sort of partially how my book came to be. So what would you say are the key differences between the, the Egyptian, the uh, Asian, and really the Judeo-Christian um, visions of the afterlife? Well, when I was writing this book, it occurred to me that here I am trying to write a book sort of tailored so that nobody will like it. Mm. <laughs> Offend everyone. Yeah. It's just got something to irritate everyone because Christians aren't going to like it because even though my pers perspective is to some degree Christian, it's not, you know, 100% down-the-line Christian at all. Um, I have a lot of Buddhist friends. My stepbrother is a Buddhist, and they're going to be put off because I suggest that there are aspects of the Buddhist point of view that are not good that are not good for us today in the modern world. Um, it's going to annoy New Agers because I kind of, I love the New Age, but I criticize the New Age for not being as smart as it should be a lot of the time. In the way the Catholics are sort of allowed to make fun of Catholicism, I see myself as allowed to make fun of the New Age because it's really what I am. Mm -hmm. It's how I grew up. You know, my dad spent all his money looking for Atlantis when I was 12 years old. I had a waterbed when I was in fifth grade. <laughs> you know, there are pyramids and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, New Agers, typically I don't think will like it because I get mad at the New Age for not having a sufficient, for not taking all of this stuff sufficiently seriously. I mean, there should be no, no more serious book in the world than one which tells you what's going to happen when you die and what you need to do to orient yourself to that. I mean, what's more serious? And a lot of the New Age volumes on the subject, I just see have this sort of smiley, you know, soft fussiness to them, but they don't really attack the problem with the directness that I think the subject matter demands. So anyhow, I have all these sort of little complaints against everybody, but at the same time, when I was writing it, I kept... Uh, there's a philosopher and writer named Ken Wilbur, who I'm sure you know. Mm -hmm. I kept a saying of his in mind when I was writing it, and that is that nobody is wrong 100%. Nobody is wrong 100% of the time. <laughs> so that while I was uh, taking parts of all these different views to task, I was also saying that a lot of them are also right. And the reason they're right is because fundamentally they're describing the same geography. And it's a, it's a geography which is real, but it's not real in the nuts and bolts way that, you know, New Jersey is real or, you know, the Lincoln Tunnel is real. But it is an actual geography. However, it demands kind of a kind of approach that we're not used to. There is an afterlife. Things do happen to you when you die. But they, they are not like the things that happen to us when we're alive. That was basically my approach. Um, it, it, what happens, in my view, is extremely complicated, but what is needed is a simple view of it. Uh, Krishnamurti once said, life is extremely complex, but we have to approach it simply. I say, I think in the introduction, you know, um, Krishnamurti said that about life. It's true. It's also true about death. death. Death is enormously complex, but we should approach it simply. And that's what many cultures previous, previous to ours did. They had simple stories to allow the person to make basic sense of it. 
and we don't have such a story today, and I think we need it, and uh, that's what my book tries to provide. Well, um, I thought it was very helpful, the distinctions you drew between the Eastern and the Western approaches, how the Eastern approach um, viewed uh, our purpose in life as being uh, sort of very circular, whereas the Western um, injected an idea of evolution into it. So could you expand upon that? Because I thought that was beautifully put. Um, Sure. Um, Basically, I think if you want to boil down the difference between the Eastern and the Western view of death, and by doing this you're making huge generalizations, but, you know, it's not an academic book, so I have to make generalizations. The East is (coughs) very much concerned with, as you said, with a circle, with things going around and around. Basically, things don't change. In the East, what you have is all this stuff on the surface, which appears to be different and changing all the time. But beneath, you've got the sort of uh, the hush, the Tao, of the yin-yang. You have everything, everything that looks different is actually part of one unity. And that's true. Um, that's, 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 you know, a, a, an insight that's completely valid for the universe. But as I think maybe Alfred North Whitehead said, the exact opposite of a great truth is sometimes another great truth. I think he said that. So while the universe is, in fact, a a whole, a thing unto itself, it also has a component of story to it. And this really arose with the beginning of the Western faith, with Judaism, with with the uh, Hebrew Bible stories of people who suddenly get up and they decide, no, they're not going to stay here. They're going to go looking for the promised land. And this is going to happen, and that is going to happen. And history is going to come to an end, and there's going to be a Messiah, and it's all going to be focused around him. And you you suddenly have this very powerful A, B, C, you have a story. And you have people who are going somewhere with a purpose. So how how do you unite these two? Is it possible? Well, the other thing that comes into play here is we in the modern world, um, a couple hundred years ago, had uh, geology and uh, evolution thrust upon us. So the idea that the Earth is not a static place and that, you know, the animals and the trees are just sort of furniture for humans to go about their human business, no, the Earth is this whole story which is unfolding, and we're a part of it. So it's almost like nature is forcing us to accept the idea that there, there is this grand narrative. And people talk about this all the time now, this, this you know, where are we going? Mm-hmm. And I find that that is much more exciting. It's much more exciting to take that idea of the grand narrative into play than to just adopt the really strict Eastern view that nothing ever changes, that it's simply a wheel turning and turning and grinding and grinding, and it's ever the same, and the job of the wise person is to get off it. I personally <laughs> don't like that one. I like the view that says... It's not going in a wheel. It gets pretty dull sometimes, but it's not going in a wheel. It's going somewhere, and it's going somewhere for a reason, and we're a part of it. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of part of my uh, character as an American, I guess. I mean, when I was writing this, I was thinking about uh, Whitman and Emerson and people like that. I was thinking this is really a, a kind of an American book of the dead that I'm writing, you nice. know, because I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and I have the idea of, you know, you, know, you get in a car, you turn on the radio, and you go somewhere. That's completely built into my system. 
So I'm not going to be satisfied with a, you know, a turning ball. It just doesn't change. But the, the yeah. Uh, I, I, I just want to tell the listeners who may have just joined us that you're listening to New Consciousness Review, and we're chatting with Ptolemy Tompkins about his new book, The Modern Book of the Dead. Um, so you were talking about the romantic and transcendental movements as injecting a new element that actually took the best of the Eastern and Western views. What was it that linked the two? Well, with the Romantics, you have this um, huge appreciation for nature, for the cosmos, for, um, you know, wisdom in the natural world, which, um, you know, the Eastern traditions, of course, always have. And you get this fusion of um, the kind of... um, cosmicness that's more t- typically associated with Eastern religions, which is why, you know, the 60s and the 70s, Eastern religions became so popular in the West, because they have this, the Eastern traditions really do have this huge respect for the universe, for nature, for seeing other animals and other beings as fellow consciousnesses, for, you know, they, they believe in what Robert Bly called twofold consciousness, that when you look out at a field and there's a tree and a deer there, Something is looking back at you. And when you have that relationship between a, a nature that you're looking at and a nature that is looking back at you, um, it raises a question. It raised a question for the romantics, which is, um, and, and um, the question was basically, if we have this relationship to nature, uh, um, Baudelaire wrote, wrote that poem, Correspondences, that, talked about how we look at nature and we see all these symbols and images in, in it and it's alive and it's looking back at us. We look and we see that, but we also see that we live in this terrible world where there's all this strife, there's suffering. So what is the meaning of that? And they turn to basically uh, to rewriting the Christian story, which is at a certain time, nature was not as it is now. and Humankind was not as it is now and there was a fall a breach of some kind and we are now in the in in the midst of that fall but we are on the way back up toward a state of unity which will be similar to the state of unity we originally had but it will be better and when i came across that i thought ah that's that's the story that i've been looking for Mm -hmm. that story of a fall which isn't just simply a fall of, of sin it's something more complicated than that it's a fall out of this original primordial unity that in a, in a sense had to happen because by happening it forces us into a greater state of originality and that's what we're all developing now that's what's happening in this terrible sort of suffering of the world and everything going on um, individuality is being born and it's being born in a thousand ways and nature is brought into it and animals are a part of it and it's on its way somewhere it's on its way to a state of unification in which everything is one again, but we're still separate. I don't know if you saw Terrence Malick's Tree of Life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, it? yes. Uh, to me, um, that scene in the end where they're all on the beach after the whole business of the movie is pretty much played out, and you see all the characters on the beach, that's very much a sort of, to me, a, a modern groping after this ancient idea of 
a renewed time in which all the nonsense we've struggled through in history has, you know, we've come through it all, and but we're all different now. By suffering through the whole thing, we've turned into something else. And this is like a basic romantic cosmic narrative, which I think is hugely valuable. And um, on top of that, is true. I mean, when you, I mean, it sounds embarrassing to say, but when you really get down to it, the only, the only story about death that has any real value is one that you absolutely believe. So when I started writing this book, I realized the only, the only thing of value it's going to have to, and if it has anything of value, is that if I really believe what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And what I see going on nowadays is the way you have all these different faiths coming together. You have uh, the ecology breaking up. You have science and spirituality all crashing into each other. And there is sort of a, a point where we're reaching at where this new synthesis, I mean, this is no idea original to me, everybody knows this, a new synthesis is demanding to come into being. And part of that synthesis is a narrative of what actually happens um, to the soul before life, during life, and after it. And uh, I suddenly saw that, you know, it would be useful if I tried to sketch out my map of what that was because no one had ever done it for me. I'd seen bits and pieces, but no one, had, no one had ever written a book that made it simple enough for me to see the whole map, and that's what I wanted to try. You had a very funny imagery that, that I want to share. You were saying that rather than being a lonely little pizza slice um, in this life, you actually find yourself part of the greater pie. Right. Well, that's, um, I started that with a, um, a little bit of writing that first showed up in the Richard Smoley's magazine, Gnosis, about, well, I used to jog, I don't do it anymore, I used to jog, and I would sometimes get this feeling of, there, there was something just behind and above me, sort of following me, and I would actually even sometimes sort of turn around to see if I could see it, and it was never there, but what I eventually came to associate it with was this idea of the higher self, um, you know, many writers have talked about the idea that when we're on Earth, we're not entirely on Earth. We, we sort of we leave our total selves behind, and we come down as kind of a fragment. Like um, we, we leave sort of the mothership of our larger, fuller personality behind, like, uh, like Star Trek or something. You, know? you send one person down, and he deals about on Earth, and then he zaps back up. And um, I find that... Um, I find that idea very appealing because it allows one to, um, well, one thing it does is it, it explains our love for having a, a removed perspective on things. This may sound silly, but when I, would, when I go to films and I see a sort of a pan over a landscape where a story is going to take place, I love the feeling of that pan. And I think it's because all of us want to be reminded that while we are playing a part down here, there is always a part of us that is outside, that is safe, that is watching what we're doing. We're not completely, totally committed down here. There's a part of us above which is seeing it all and which is rooting for us and which will be waiting when we get to the end. And you have that image in all different kinds of mythologies, like when, when the soul finally returns after life, it's, it's greeted by its larger part. Well, as well as guardian angels. Yeah, and it's connected to that as well, sure, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I find it, uh, I find it a very attractive idea, but I, um, I believe there's a component of truth to it. Well, it certainly has the weight of of uh, 
testimony from just about every different tradition. Yes. Uh, and you talk about this uh, overriding presence in connection with the group soul. That's a really interesting concept and one that New Age circles talk about as being part of a, a group soul. <laughs> Would you like to expand on that idea? Um, yes. You know, one of, the, um, one of the problems that comes up when people try to fit all these different perspectives into a unifying one that will make sense of human life and human death in a modern context is what happens with reincarnation because the reincarnation I grew up with as a kid in my sort of in the new age milieu that I grew up in it's like well if you were if you were if you were King Henry VIII and you didn't behave very well then you'd be born into some crummy situation here where you had to serve everybody and I always found that you know fairly lacking and not, not very satisfying but if and I think that there's personally I think it's very hard to dismiss all the evidence in favor of reincarnation. I think that uh, there's, just, there's just too much evidence that, that something of that nature is going on. But what if it is not the cut and dry event that we tend to imagine it as, but what, what if a number of souls um, have a relationship with each other and as some sort of dive off, I, I envisioned it as a bunch of kids on a raft in a lake. And some dive off the raft and go down, and others come up. And there's this interplay of knowledge and um, finding out about the landscape in the back and forth of these kids who are going up and going down and going back and forth. And so that one can have knowledge of previous lives that are not necessarily <clears throat> the result of one having lived it oneself, but because of one's relationship to some other person who perhaps did live that life. I mean, there's so much evidence about people, past life regression and stuff, where these images come up and people will sort of, you know, have these crazy, often um, um, accurate views of times and places. And they say, God, yeah. well, did I live here? Did I live there? And maybe, maybe we don't have to just say, yes, you live there. Maybe it has to do with a sort of a larger collaboratory event which takes place um, um, beyond our vision here, and this is sort of this is sort of the bracing dark murk where the actual work takes place, but the actual specifics of it as to who goes down and who knows what is infinitely more complex than we can imagine. Well, so many aspects of this are being um, testified to by a wave, uh, a plethora of uh, books on about people's near-death experiences that seems to be crashing on the shores at the moment. Um, they did seem to be a lot, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of near-death and, and death, um, you said in your book that your father's death was one of the things that really gave you the impetus to write the book. Why did his death inspire you to write it? Well, it made me realize that because I grew up I grew up in a, I, I saw myself as having grown up in kind of a good environment to write a book about this, um, in that I did have this very new age childhood, and then I have a brother who's a Tibetan Buddhist, so I have this, a lot of experience of, you know, basically what the Buddhist Eastern idea of the world is like. And then I worked for 10 years at Guideposts, which is this very down-the-line mainstream Christian magazine. 
And so I kind of have a lot of sympathy for what the average American Christian believes. Um, and I have sympathy for all these different perspectives, but they never all quite mixed. I could talk, I could talk with somebody at guidepost. I could talk to a New Ager. I could talk to my Buddhist brother, but they didn't all come together. But I had this whole mush of different ideas um, of what happens. But when I was watching my father die, sort of keeping him company in the house where he spent many years, I suddenly. <coughs> realized that there was no single picture of what was happening to him. I believed that something was happening to him. I did not believe that he was coming to a halt. I did not believe that his consciousness was just fizzling out like a cigarette that you put in water, and that was the end to it. I believed that there was a larger part of him that was going to move on. But at the same time, there were all these conflicting narratives. You know, in my stepbrother's world, he was maybe, you know, my dad didn't behave so tremendously well in life all the time. Maybe he was going to go through the 49-day Bardo world and become a grasshopper somewhere or <laughs> a worm. Um, you know, in the Christian view, no, he's going, you know, he's going to sleep until uh, all souls rise with, you know, the end of time. And I, I found myself overwhelmed by the clear, there's something sort of bracing and amazing about death. Death sort of ontologically brings things to life, even even when it's sad it brings things around you into the sharp focus, I've found. I haven't been around a lot of deaths, but the people I've been around who've died, it sort of it makes the table, the carpet, the wall, it, it, it's, everything is suddenly just right there. And, and you say to yourself, my God, these, what just happened to the person who was in this body? Did they disappear or are they somewhere else? I want to know. And I, I have always wanted to know that. Mm -hmm. And I realized if I didn't have that clear picture in my head yet, maybe I should try to create it myself, even if it's obnoxious to try to do so and I don't really have the tools and I'm not well enough educated. Well, what the hell? Why don't I just try to do it anyhow? And so that's what I did. So after all of this research, what is your gut uh, idea of what happens to us once we leave our bodies behind? I think... It is a tragedy that so many people in the modern world um, absorb the materialist, the basic materialist idea that we're born into, which is that um, death is the ending of the personality and it is a loss. I believe profoundly that death, in fact, is a return to our larger personality. And that larger personality is beyond the brain. It contains infinitely more than the brain contains. It's more personal. It has a memory of everything. And it's in touch with all the other people we've ever known. It is a movement upward, and it is something to treat with tremendous seriousness, but also something to celebrate. I'm quite convinced of it. I mean, I just drowned myself in this literature, and um, nobody could tell me otherwise. And I find it... Uh, you know, I'm, del I'm delighted that I came across all this literature that did so. Mm -hmm. Have you yourself had a near-death experience? No, I haven't. I just I read books, and uh, I'm, I'm you know I read books and and think about things. I'm, I'm not a great expert in anything, and and, and I, I have no you know nothing gives me any great title to write it at all, except that I like I like finding the books that are good. And I think I have fairly good taste in that and sort of um, 
piecing out the real messages in them. I think I'm slightly good at that. That's about the only reason I have, or not reason, but it's my only justification. <laughs> I think you're, you're rather modest. Um, was there anything that particularly surprised you in the research that you did for this book? Well, what really surprised me is how much of it there was prior to the 1970s. Um, I grew up thinking that people got interested in near-death experiences around 1975 when Raymond Moody's book came out and that people didn't really know much about them before then. There is this enormous amount of largely out-of-print material um, talking about um, life after death and whether it exists in, in enormously sophisticated ways. Um, all through the 20s, the 30s, the 40s in America and in England, there was a hugely sophisticated discussion of this. And it's just sort of been forgotten about. And pretty much every detail from the near-death experience books that you see in the 70s, those books are fine. I don't mean to um, you know, say anything derogatory about them. But just about every detail of the stuff that's discussed in them, you find in these other books, which just sort of got washed to the side of the river um, and forgotten about. And when I, when I ran across one, I started finding another one. And then I discovered hidden beneath, the, um, hidden beneath all that stuff about mediums and seances and all that stuff that we think is silly and associate with the turn of the century, you know, the 19th, 20th century. We have this sort of cartoony, ridiculous vision of that. Well, that was all there. But beneath the surface, there were also some tremendously smart scientific people um, trying to look into the phenomenon of death from a modern perspective. And they were not dumb. Um, and some of the books they wrote are as valid today as they were when they were patented. And people don't pay enough attention to them. Um, and that was probably the biggest surprise. Like, wow, look at this material. And uh, nobody really talks about it. It's kind of ironic that um, these very serious people were looking into these very spiritual questions from a scientific perspective. And yet, when we come into the 20th century, uh, the same uh, application of science was used to totally dissociate spirituality from our lives, almost to, to surgically extirpate it. I know, and it's very unfortunate because you have these scientists, well, not the good ones, but you have, you know, certain advocates of science going around arguing that science won the fight and that's it. Nothing could be further from the truth. Um, I find it amazing that some of these people who, who think that science has all the answers and that to speak of sort of a spiritual aspect of the universe, um, they have much less ground to stand upon than most people believe. Like when... I find Stephen Hawking in particular kind of astonishing because obviously he's a very bright man, et cetera, and so forth, but he makes these statements about the, the foolishness of, of thinking that the brain is anything more than a machine that will die and consciousness is just a secondary thing inside of the brain and it'll, it'll, you know, it'll grind to a stop and that's all that it is. He makes these statements and people listen to him because they respect him as a scientist, as they should, but he makes these statements that he has no business making because he doesn't have the proof at all. And it's really quite terrible because people would be so much better off if they were alert to the fact that science has not disproved the survival of the soul one little bit. 
there are there is options of fascinating evidence that personality survives, and you don't have to read sort of, I don't know, books that might strike you with you. Know, there's serious books about it. It's not a non-serious topic. Yeah. Yeah. And and in fact, a scientist of the stature of Einstein was deeply spiritual and, and deeply into the possible open to the possibility of a mystery. The, the real scientific geniuses always were. They didn't make any blanket statements. It seems like those those people always, you know, stopped in front of the mystery and said, we don't know. Einstein here said here or there might have said, you know, I, it irritates me that I don't have this answer. But I don't. I mean, that's real science. Mm-hmm. How would you define the soul? And what do you think is the law, non-local nature of consciousness? Well, it gets tricky because we live in a world, um, um, we live in a world of time and, and space and objects. So it's very different. It's very difficult for us to imagine a world where time and space and objects are different from the way they are here. Um, but a lot of the literature that I was most interested in suggests that when we original, initially die, um, we find ourselves in a place where there are time, where there's time and space and objects, and often the same objects that we had around here while we were alive. And this makes no sense to people because if they think, oh, I'm dead, I'm supposed to be Casper the ghost, you know, I'm supposed to be a vague <laughs> spirit. But the fact of the matter is that reality, perception, perception is an intensely creative process. I look around the room here and I see four walls and I see a shelf with books, and it all seems just very much out there and I'm just seeing it. In fact, my brain is doing a lot of work to create that order. It's getting all these light waves coming in and it's doing a lot of work to sort of build that picture and make it orderly for me because I have practice being around on Earth with my eyes open. when we die, we still proceed creatively. We're beyond the body, but we are still um, partially um, apprehending what we're seeing, but we're also creating it as well. But uh, reality becomes more elastic. So we can find ourselves in, an, in, a, in a landscape from when we were kids. And there's a tree, and it's moving, and there's a breeze. And, um, you know, there's, there's tons of literature on this. It makes so much sense to me. It's just completely fascinating. We are in a realm where the imagination is partially creating the world that we're in. It's kind of like a dream world, but it's much more real. And part of what books like the Tibetan Book of the Dead were doing were um, preparing people for when this happened. Because if you're not prepared for it, you don't know what's going on. You're, You're in a world that's partially of your making, but it's also real. But all kinds of cockamamie stuff is happening in it because your subconscious is creating it. And it can be quite terrifying. But <clears throat> as you, the longer you stay in that world and the more you learn to navigate your way around, you move up and you, and you move into more rarefied worlds where things aren't as, as concrete and don't hold as still as they do in the original ones. I don't know. I'm sure some listeners are listening to this and thinking, this guy is completely out of his mind, but there's so much literature on it, and when I, it just seems fascinating to me, and it seems, you know, very compellingly believable. All well, you have to do, really, I think, is if, if, if you can accept two things. Um, I have this somewhere in the book. If you can accept two things, one, that consciousness is capable of being free of the brain, that there's such a thing as non-local brain-free consciousness. Mm-hmm. 
you know, if you can accept that, and if you can accept the idea that um, there is a component of imagination which is more creative, um, that, that we can actually create our realities once our consciousness is outside of our brains. That sounds like pretty far-fetched, but there's a lot of evidence for both of those things. Once you accept that, all kinds of crazy stuff can go on. Absolutely. I, for one thing, well, we talk about the dream state, which you know possibly is a dress rehearsal for the afterlife. And uh, so, somebody as eminent as, as uh, Richard Feynman, you know, the... Yep. Uh, Laureate uh, talked about uh, posing these questions that uh, the answers came to him in the dream state and he would wake up in the morning sure. with the answer. Sure. Whatever your orientations as, as a psychologist, I think most agree that um, stuff comes to us in, in uh, funny ways. Uh, there's that fellow who wrote that book, Imagine. Um, that came out recently where he argues that there are no idea, no new ideas. All new ideas are just combinations of old ones, and they're just generated by the three pounds of putty that's in our skulls. An agreement, a, a book I can't say I really agree with much. But well, even he, he said... Ecclesiastes was saying that a few thousand years ago. Yeah. Um, but even somebody with a point of view, with a point of view like that, even he acknowledged, well, to come up with something new, you kind of have to relax. I believe he said you should drink a beer or take a shower. <laughs> but um, and it, it again goes back to that sort of idea from romantic psychology that the larger, better, bigger, smarter part of us is largely not in here. It's sort of, speaking figuratively, it's kind of floating above us. And we can get access to it, greater or lesser degrees of access, depending depending on the point in question, but that that's where, you know, real inspiration comes from, that we are more than we think we are, and we're going to be more than we think we are as well. Ptolemy, do you think your book can help alleviate people's fear about death? Gee, that would be nice. I mean, when I wrote it, I, I have that subtitle, you know, A Revolutionary Perspective, and I thought, wow, how noxious to... Um, write a book that calls itself revolutionary. But then I thought, it's really okay to call it that because it is revolutionary, And but I didn't come up with any of it. So it's really okay for me to... I mean, I think my book is, is about some of the more important stuff that a book could possibly be about. But that doesn't really to blow my own horn because that's just what I thought before I wrote the book. I just think, I think this is a subject matter that we can't pay enough attention to. Mm -hmm. And that when we listen to people who say that when you die, it's all over... We're removing so much possibility for enjoying life because when you have that attitude, you know, you're, you're, you're shutting most of life and most of yourself out. And it's criminal that we don't allow ourselves to get a better perspective. And it's there for the taking. I mean, there's plenty of evidence for it. Why do you feel that the coherent picture of the afterlife is so important to our living life well today? Because people in times past saw the physical geography they lived in within the context of a more than physical geography. And very much the way they couched that were, were in naive ways by saying, you know, the mountains come to the end beyond that mountain and there's no more earth and stuff like that. We live in a more sophisticated, giant universe where we know all kinds of stuff that's going on 100 million light years away. But at the same time, 
we live in a completely one-dimensional universe because we live in a universe where we think the psyche is just this bit of electricity generated by our brains. And there's this whole other universe where our psyche is more at home. And when it leaves this part, it will return to that. And so to live in a life that doesn't acknowledge that part of the geography is like living in your basement yeah, with yeah. the door shut. Yeah, you, you talk in your book about uh, something called the plane of color, which readers will have to read the book to find out more about. But it really is like the difference between living in a black and white world and living in a technicolor world. Well, there are all these um, very interesting um, Islamic texts, actually. Um, that talk, there's a lot of Islamic mystics that talk about them. Um, um, what Henry Corbin, a French scholar, called the Mundus Imaginalis. It's the world in between here and heaven. And it's a world where there is space and where there are objects, but it's not space and objects like we experience. And colors are more vivid there. Mm -hmm. um, it's more intense. It's funny that we have such a longing for films like, a film like Avatar, where you have this other world where everything sort of glows with this weird intensity. And we long for, for things like that. Like movies like that just attract people in droves. Absolutely. We want the magic in life. Yeah, and there's something real there. All yeah. that CGI, all that, non all that computerized nonsense, it's tapping into this longing we have for that. We want that world to be real. Mm -hmm. You know, this sort of weird technicolor world that is more than the world we live in. It's where things down here are explained and seen in a larger perspective. We're all dying to have that world. Whether we're Absolutely. Or not. And I'm signing up for your universe. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely uh, think that it will. it's much more fun to live our lives as if this is the true picture than it is to think that this is the end of the, just uh, the grind Anyway, tell me, tell me what you're working on now. I am actually working with a um, Harvard uh, neuro, neurosurgeon who had a near-death experience. His name is Eben Alexander, and he's writing a book. I'm just sort of helping him edit and put it together. He had what uh, might be the most significant near-death experience in history. And he, his entire cortex went down for seven days. And uh, he was looking for somebody to sort of, you know, organize the material and put it together with him. And he happened to run across my book the day it came out, and he read it, and he said, I like this. Would you like to, you know, help me put this book together? And I said, yes. I was just wondering how I could, you know, now I finished this book, how can I keep studying this stuff and, and earn a little money? So he just, he waltzed in from nowhere and... Well, I can't wait to read that it. book. Uh, it should be very good. It's really being heavily anticipated. Yeah. It's an extraordinary story. Actually, I was speaking to the publicist, and she said it's due out April of 2013. So we really right. look forward to it. Anyway, I want to commend this book, The Modern Book of the Dead, to our readers. It's a, a fascinating meander through all of the different stories, pulling them together. So thank you so much for writing it, Ptolemy. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for being with us. It's been tremendous fun.
and you're listening to New Consciousness Review. We've been talking with Ptolemy Tompkins, whose rather unique website is ptolemytompkins.net, spelled P-T-O-L-E-M-Y-T-O-M-P-K-I-N-S dot net. Thank you, Ptolemy, and goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye. My guest next week will be Paul Von Ward discussing his book, We've Never Been Alone, A History of Extraterrestrial Intervention. Don't miss it, and since it will be live, you can call in and ask Paul your own questions. And now we're going to close with a track of the week selected by Scott Johnson from among members of the Positive Music Association. This week we're featuring Kumbaya by Faith Rivera.
That was Kumbaya by the fab Filipina Faith Rivera, a Kauai-born singer-songwriter and touring positive music artist. Her transformational music has been featured on popular TV shows, and her song Forever Near got an Emmy in 2003 for Outstanding Original Song. Check out her website, faithrivera.com. If you'd like to join the Positive Music Association, go to positivemusicassociation.com. Well, that wraps up our show for today. To discover more fascinating books, films, authors, and events, check out our website at ncreview.com. And leave comments on facebook.com slash ncreview. So until next week, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.